Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. How can a grown man be born again? Nicodemus asked. He certainly cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. I am telling you the truth, replied Jesus, that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. Do not be surprised because I tell you that you must all be born again. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Good News Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth. We are continuing our look at the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is the 400 to 450 year period that lapsed between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It's a very important period in overall biblical history, but we suspect it's one of the least studied. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why do you think the intertestamental period receives so little attention, even from people who are faithful students of the Bible? Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. If you, by some chance, are joining us here for the first time today, we'd like to thank you for joining us on either the broadcast or the podcast, and we would like to invite you to come back and keep checking us out. And if you've heard Anchored by Truth before, well, we would really like to thank you for coming back. We know that your continuing interest in our show marks you as someone who is serious about wanting to know the Bible and know the Bible much better. We know that much of the material that we discuss on Anchored by Truth requires some degree of thought and concentration, and we know that in today's hectic world, that's not always easy to come by. Anyway, back to your question, I think you're right that the intertestamental period may be the period of biblical history that receives the least attention today. Because we will normally focus our time on Scripture itself, We all do tend to think not very much about what happened during those periods of biblical history that were actually outside of Scripture. And this is particularly true since the events that we're talking about during this series on the intertestamental period happened well over 2,000 years ago in a world where we expect instant responses to clicks and button pressing on our remote controls. We tend to dismiss events of 2,000 years ago fairly quickly. But you believe that those events that happened over 2,000 years ago are still important in our lives today. Why is that? Well, let me answer that question with a question. What is God's will for every single one of His children? That's an easy one. God wants us all to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, quote, The scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. Unquote. I know a lot of people spend a lot of time wondering what God's will is for their lives. Usually they're thinking about what to study in school 
what job to take, or whether to get married. And those are important decisions. But when it comes down to it, the only goal that Scripture states for all of our lives is for us to be holy. And that's a very good answer. Thank you. And so the next question is, how do we go about becoming holy? Well, I suppose two verses spring to mind. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, where Jesus says, quote, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, quote, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And again, that's a very good answer. And I might add John 4.24, which says God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is talking to someone who is referred to as a scribe or a teacher of the law. In other words, Jesus was talking to a religious expert of the time. Now, in Mark 12.28, the scribe has asked Jesus which of the commandments is the most important And after Jesus reminded the scribe that there is only one God, Jesus replies with the commandment to love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people today forget about the mind part. Well, then in John 4.24 that I mentioned just a minute ago, Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and that's when Jesus tells her that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, it would be hard for us to know the truth if we don't use our minds. And that's exactly what Jesus had told the scribe, that we must use our mind as part of the love that we expressed for God. Well, the point about all of this is that in order for us to be holy, we have to use not only our hearts and our strength, but also our minds. Well, one of the things that we need to be doing with our minds is not only reading Scripture, but also doing our best to understand what we are reading. So, your point is that there are many events that happened over 2,000 years ago that affected or directly applied to the content of our current Bibles. Some of these events occurred during the intertestamental period. So, if we don't have some understanding of these periods historically, we are automatically placing limits on our understanding of some parts of Scripture. Right. You know, I'm not saying that everyone has to turn into a Bible historian, because I know that I certainly am not a Bible historian. But what I am saying is that as we progress through our Christian lives, in order to be obedient to Christ's command to the scribe and to the admonition that he gave to the Samaritan woman at the well, we need to grow in our understanding. We need to grow in our understanding not only of the Bible, but also of the times in which the Bible was set. And we need to do that, because our times and culture are quite different from the times and culture in which the Bible was written. The Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked, but very, very few modern Bible readers have ever had to put a yoke on themselves, or on an animal for that matter. But we at least need to have a basic understanding of how yokes were used in biblical times for us to see how that commandment should apply in our own lives. Once again, that's a great illustration. And again, thank you. So, one of the biggest reasons we have undertaken this series on the intertestamental period is to make it a little easier for our listeners, who truly do want to improve their understanding of the Bible, achieve their goal. We're doing the research and putting the research into a package that they can consume easily and share easily. Exactly right. 
Now, let's go back to that verse from 1 Peter, where Peter starts off the encouragement part of his letter by reminding his readers of the verse that's originally presented in Leviticus 11.44 and then repeated in Leviticus 19.2. Peter is writing his letter to a very widely separated group of believers, believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, those regions aren't present on our maps today, or at least most of them are not, and so most of us aren't familiar with where those regions were. Well, those are actually regions, we might consider them to be states, and they're located in modern-day Turkey. But if you looked at them on a map of the time that applies to the time when Peter was writing, you'll find out that those regions cover an awful lot of territory. And so Peter, in writing to that rather disparate group of believers, he obviously intends for his letter to be widely circulated. So after some introductory comments, Peter starts off by reminding his readers that God's will for their lives, and I might add God's will for our lives, is for them to be holy. And this is a particularly important instruction to his readers because Peter's readers were, at that time, being subjected to a great deal of persecution. Like many believers are today. Yes, like many believers are today. And so Peter is writing to them because Peter does not want his readers, does not want that widely separated group of believers to give up their faith. Peter wants them, and he wants us, to persevere. So Peter starts off his encouragement, the encouraging portion of his letter, by reminding them that God wants them to be persistent in their efforts to be holy. Peter reminds his readers that the basis for this admonition for them to be holy is because God himself is holy. But in reminding his readers of God's holiness, Peter is actually reminding them that God is on their side. He's not trying to act as some sort of conduct policeman. What Peter is actually reminding his readers is that God is on their side. God is so much on their side that God wants them to be clearly identified with him through their lives and behavior. Right? Right. Peter is reminding his readers, and again, all of us, that God is very well aware of the temptations and the persecutions that would come into their lives and the persecutions and temptations that come into our own lives. But God does not abandon us or them in those temptations and persecution. God remains with his people because God knows very well how tempting it can be for us we're in the middle of the struggle to give up. God wants us to continue, as you might say, fighting the good fight. There is no more fundamental comfort for a Christian than Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31, where God tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. I agree. So the foundation for God telling his people to be holy and for his people to love him with all their hearts, souls, strength, and mind is that God's people belong to him uniquely and specially. God is telling his people, hey, you belong to me. You do not belong to the world or to the forces of the world. Now, this, not coincidentally, is a lesson that we can see clearly from God's supernatural preservation of his people during that 450-year period that we now call the intertestamental period. I like how you brought our discussion back to the intertestamental period we've been talking about. Thank you. I try. What you're saying is that the Jews in Palestine during the intertestamental period would have had every reason to be discouraged. 
They had just endured decades of exile from their homeland. Even after the exile ended and some returned home, they returned home to an impoverished and desolate set of cities, towns, and fields. Even back in their homeland, they were surrounded by hostile actors who would happily have destroyed them if they could. When Nehemiah arrived to lead an effort to restore the walls of Jerusalem, the workers were constantly harassed. They were threatened so much they had to keep their weapons with them at all times. And even after they rebuilt the walls and the temple, neither had the grandeur they had known formerly. The truth was it would have been easy for the Jews of that time to give up and leave, or at least give up what made them distinctive, their faith. But they didn't give up their faith, and neither should we during times of trial. Exactly. But, you know, while the Jews had not given up their faith during the intertestamental period, as Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus in our opening scripture illustrates, even though the Jews hadn't given up their faith, some errors had crept into the practice of their faith, and some errors had crept into their understanding of their faith. And this particular fact is not only illustrated by Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus, but it's also illustrated by the exchange that Jesus had with the Sadducees that we talked about in our last episode of Anchored by Truth. Last time we discussed the instance where the Sadducees tried to trick Jesus with the woman married to seven brothers question that is related in Matthew chapter 22 and also in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so they had developed this trick question about a woman who was married to seven different brothers in accordance with the Jewish requirement that a younger brother marry the widow of an older brother. The Sadducees tried to illustrate that believing in the resurrection created questions that were impossible to answer, like whose wife the widow would be after the resurrection. Right. But of course, the Sadducees couldn't trick Jesus. Instead, Jesus pointed out that their very own scriptures proved that the resurrection was real by quoting the scripture that described Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. So, both the exchange with the Sadducees and Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus showed that, even though the Jews had persevered in retaining their faith during the intertestamental period, errors had crept into their understanding of the content of their faith. Now, in the case of the Sadducees, the Sadducees had begun to deny a very fundamental doctrine of their own faith. And that doctrine was that there was life after death, and that that life after death would include a resurrection, and that that resurrection would not just be spiritual, but that resurrection would be physical. And we don't really know why the Sadducees had come to reject the doctrine of the resurrection, do we? Not precisely, no. But I think we can make some informed speculation. Uh, Let's remember that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were kind of like the political parties of their day, and probably they had been in existence at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry for at least 100 years, possibly as much as 150 years. Well, for over 200 years during the intertestamental period, Palestine, the territory of Israel, had been ruled by one group of Greeks or another. Well, when the Greeks took over a territory militarily, They actively promoted their language, their culture, and their ideas. They promoted those things in the territories they controlled, and this process was referred to as Hellenization. Well, one part of the ideas that the Greeks had as part of their philosophy was the idea that the immaterial part of human beings, our spirit or soul, if you will, was far superior to the fleshly part of a human being. 
So the Greeks largely thought of the spirit as being good, but the body as being evil. So to the Greeks and in Greek philosophy, the spirit needed to be liberated from the body. And for some reason, of course, the Greeks thought of death as accomplishing this liberation. So this was very much a part of Greek philosophy and of the Greek culture, the idea that bodies were bad and spirits were good. Well, somehow or another, that notion, that idea, may have pervaded the nation of Israel enough during the time that the Sadducees were forming as a political party that they began partially to adopt that idea as part of their own belief system. The notion that the spirit is good but the body is evil is completely foreign to the Christian faith, isn't it? When God had finished his creative activity on the sixth day, he pronounced everything he created very good. So this pronouncement included both man's body and spirit. Christianity and Judaism regard human beings as body-spirit unities, with both parts having been originally created good, right? Right. And the Christian hope of resurrection, again, is a physical resurrection, just as Jesus was physically resurrected after he had been in the tomb. After Jesus came out of the tomb, Jesus walked around. He interacted with his disciples. He cooked food and he ate food. In fact, Jesus invited Thomas to touch his body in order to cure Thomas's doubts. The Christian faith believes in a physical resurrection, although the bodies that we will have after the resurrection are not bodies that have been corrupted by sin, but instead they will be glorified physical bodies, just like the one that Jesus obviously possessed after he walked out of the tomb. Well, as I mentioned just a minute ago, during the intertestamental period, the Sadducees seem to have been heavily influenced by the Greek ideas that were circulating in Palestine as a result of the Hellenization. So the Sadducees, as a party, seem to have been much more willing to embrace the process of Hellenization than the Pharisees like Nicodemus were. The Pharisees seem to have been the party within Israel that resisted Hellenization. The Pharisees seem to have been far more interested in preserving their original culture and religion. As such, the Pharisees embraced the entire body of what we call the Old Testament as scripture, whereas the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative. So after the intertestamental period, when Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry, the Pharisees did not believe in the resurrection. But based on the exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus, apparently some errors had crept into their understanding also. It's just their errors were different from the errors of the Sadducees. Yes, the Sadducees were wrong about the existence of life after death, especially physical life. Now, since the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection at all, they had no interest or questions in how such a resurrection could be accomplished. Now, Pharisees such as Nicodemus did believe in the resurrection, but apparently even a Pharisee as knowledgeable as Nicodemus was had some questions about resurrection or life after death or eternal life or whatever. In particular, Nicodemus seems to have wondered about the means by which the resurrection would be achieved. So Nicodemus seemed to have a good understanding of the ends, but not necessarily the means of the resurrection. So, very wisely, Nicodemus brought his questions to Jesus because, as Nicodemus acknowledged at the beginning of his meeting with Jesus, Nicodemus knew that Jesus had come from God. So we get some great lessons from this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. First, we learn that even people who are respected leaders and mature in their faith can still have questions, and that's okay. It's okay to have questions, 
And when we do, it makes sense to go find people we think can help us find answers. We also learn that God is willing to provide us with teachers if we are sincere in wanting to grow in our understanding. Throughout church history, there have been skilled teachers and preachers who have thought carefully about matters that are of concern to all of us. Thankfully, they have left behind an abundance of resources that are available to us today. So even though we can't go physically to Jesus, we can go to a source of revelation more complete than Nicodemus had. Nicodemus had ready access to the Old Testament, but we have ready access to both the Old and the New Testaments. Those are both very valuable observations that you've just made. But you know, we get to learn even more when we contrast Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus and Jesus' exchange with the Sadducees. Like what? Well, let's focus on the fact that Nicodemus was an honest questioner. Nicodemus had some sincere questions about certain aspects of his faith, about certain aspects of the Jewish religion. But when Nicodemus approached Jesus, Nicodemus made no attempt to trick Jesus. You'll remember that the Sadducees did attempt to trick Jesus. The Sadducees tried to trick Jesus with their supposedly impossible-to-answer question. You know, the Sadducees probably used that question pretty regularly during their debates with the Pharisees about whether the resurrection was real or was even possible. And that trick question probably worked pretty well with the Pharisees, but it didn't work with Jesus. So, one of the lessons that we can learn when we compare these two different encounters is that we need, as believers, and hopefully as students of the Bible and Scripture, to recognize when we get the opportunity to learn from a skilled and knowledgeable believer, we need to be honest about the need to expand and understand our faith better. And when we get those opportunities, we need to be honest about our questions and open to the teaching of whoever that we've determined is a good teacher. But we do need to be discerning about who we accept as teachers. We need to be sure that people we look to for help in growing in our faith are people who are solidly grounding in the understanding of the Bible. We need to be sure their desire is to elevate the Bible rather than their own ideas. Yes, that's a good caveat to keep in mind. Now, another lesson that we pick up when we compare Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus as opposed to his encounter with the tricky Sadducees is to see how Jesus responded. With the Sadducees, Jesus first corrected their misunderstanding about the resurrection But then Jesus went on and added what I would characterize as a fairly mild rebuke. He just said, you have made a serious error. But Jesus did not go any further in his discussion with the Sadducees. But with Nicodemus, it was different because Jesus could see that Nicodemus was both open and teachable. And so Jesus went beyond just trying to explain a basic point of doctrine regarding the content of Nicodemus' faith. Well, in John's account of the encounter, John doesn't really record Nicodemus asking Jesus a question before Jesus told him that he had to be born again. That's true. Now, we're not really sure whether there was a preliminary discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus before Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born again. You know, as a gospelist, as a reporter, John tends to focus on the material which is most relevant to John's basic purpose of demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God. So it is possible that Nicodemus asked a question which John just didn't bother reporting in his retelling of the event. But it's also possible that Jesus already knew what Nicodemus wanted to ask. 
But at any rate, Jesus did not just go about addressing the basic question that Nicodemus had. Jesus went on to expand on his answer. Jesus gave Nicodemus more than he initially expected. Jesus probably went on to give Nicodemus information that Nicodemus didn't even know he needed. Jesus gave Nicodemus information that has become one of the foundational cornerstones of the Christian faith. You're thinking of John chapter 3, verse 16, possibly the most well-known verse of the entire Bible. Quote, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Exactly. Now, it's a very good idea for us to have some understanding of what life was like in Israel while Jesus was performing his earthly ministry. We need to know a little something about the culture, about the economy, about the political parties, about the government. We need to know something about those aspects of Israel during Jesus' earthly ministry because they affect how Jesus talked to and presented his explanations to the people that he was ministering to directly. When we see how Jesus ministered to those around him, it will improve our ability to minister to those people who are around us. Improving our own understanding of Scripture, our own awareness of the times and lives in which Jesus and Nicodemus and the others lived, is one of the most invaluable ways that we can help our own friends today. Amen. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Jesus' ministry while he was on this earth was all about saving those who are lost spiritually. The need for doing that continues today. So today, let's listen to a prayer for our nation knowing that God continues to want to provide His light to any and all who are genuinely open to receiving answers to sincere questions. A Prayer for the Nation Almighty and Sovereign Father, You are the one true and perfect ruler of all that is and all that ever will be. The stars move at Your command and the cosmos stretches out by the works of your hands. If the heavens themselves and all they contain are ruled by you, then how much more are the nations of men subject to your eternal reign? Lord, we come to you today to pray for our nation, the United States of America. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we pledge that this is one nation under God. May it truly be so. May our people recognize that we owe our existence to you and that you are the rightful master of this nation and indeed all creation. Nations rise and fall at your command for you ordain and govern all the affairs of this world. We pray, Lord, that this nation might find favor in your sight as we turn and look to you. We know that there is much about our nation and people today that does not please you and does not conform to your will. Forgive us for this, mighty Lord. In too many ways, we have wandered from the truths upon which we were founded. We repent of our wanderings and especially the part we have played in them. We have too often lost sight that we will all be held accountable to you and this has led to foolish pride and unwise presumption. Bring us to a renewed sense of your holiness and justice, and help us to rebuke our failings. 
Help us to humble ourselves so that we may begin again to walk straight paths as we depend on you. Lord, there are many other nations and groups in this world that would seek our harm and even our devastation. Even now, many conspire against us. We pray that you would not allow them to succeed. Do not let our stumbles become an occasion for their joy. We pray that you would confound them in their efforts to cause us harm and injury. We do not ask this on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of your mercy. Do not let them become proud by granting them a victory as we struggle for restoration. Lord, give wisdom and instruction to our leaders at all levels, both civilian and military. Turn their hearts to you and bring them into direct contact with your transforming character. Remind them that they are your stewards and that all their authority comes only from you. Let the name of your Son be lifted up in our hearts as we rejoice in the restoration and salvation he brought. We glory and hope in his name, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.